Welcome to The Director's Take, a podcast where we explore how you go from directing something with your mates to being the most senior decision maker on a film set. I'm Oz Arshad. And I'm Marcus Thomas. And we are both writer-directors at the beginning of our TV and feature film directing journeys. The pathway doesn't exist, so we are going to do our best to help bridge the gap. Hello and welcome to The Director's Take. We've had a lot of questions from people asking about film schools, so we thought we'd demystify them for all of you. So me and Oz both have an affiliation with the NFTS, that's the National Film and Television School in Beaconsfield, and I did the MA in Directing Fiction, and Oz completed the Diverse Directors Workshop, now known as the Prime Video Directors Workshop, so we've got that side covered. But this isn't the NFTS show, and other film schools do exist. So we've brought on a filmmaker and a friend, Remy Moses, who is a very recent attendee of the London Film School to talk about his experience there. To talk about the differences in curriculum and hopefully give you all a bit more of a sense of how film schools can and not should fit into your journey as a director. So a bit about Remy. Remy is a British-born filmmaker who has been filmmaking for nine years and likes to tell stories about disability, invisible illnesses and struggles and intimately complicated queer relationships. He has an affinity with intimate black stories, often told from his own experiences growing up in a Caribbean household. And when it comes to visual storytelling, Remy has a very poignant and romantic style. He takes huge pride in bringing heavy emotions and realism to his dramas, often elevating the genre by fusing it with horror, thriller or mystery. Remy has won awards for his films and had them screened all over the world. Notable festivals including the BAFTA Qualifying, Norwich Film Festival and Aesthetica Festival, Los Angeles Short Film Festival and other smaller festivals in New York, Australia, Sweden and also Glasgow. So Remy Moses, welcome to the director's take. Thank you, man. That bio sounds crazy when other people say it back to me. Yeah, I mean, you wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> Doesn't sound like it, man. Maybe I'm doing a good job as a writer. <laughs> yeah, you should do more of that. <laughs> yeah, so we thought we'd kind of just like bring you on just just to kind of learn a bit about you, but just to have a more general conversation about what film school is, why you should go, why you shouldn't go, like what it gives you, the platform it can give you, these sorts of things. So I think to begin with, it'll be good to have you just talk us through your journey into filmmaking and how and why you got into it. Where did it start? I was naturally very athletic and sporty um and i was a swimmer and a footballer um i was you know on the athletics team in my lane and stuff like this and when i was 15 i got diagnosed with crohn's and I, the thing is i wasn't even diagnosed then i think i was i was diagnosed when i was 18 but between 15 and 18 it was just such a big transition in my life where like i had to stop doing sports and so because that that period of my life, I was coming out of secondary school. I had to to, to choose A levels, and I chose art, media studies, and photography. And I got my hands on a DSLR camera for the first time during the A levels, and started messing around with a movie function, started just doing media images, and it all kind of all those three courses kind of combined. Where I was doing media studies, photography, and art. So all of them kind of helped each other in a way, and I was able to kind of basically do one big course instead of three A-levels. Um, and then from there, I started doing YouTube videos of like, because I, I used to go to a college in, in East London, in uh, like popular Isle of Dogs. I was surrounded by 10,000 rappers who all wanted like to be on SBTV and stuff like that. And at the time, 
And I think I started when I was 16. So by the time I was 17 and I was in college, I started my own YouTube channel, but I was also working for like Graham Daily, uh, doing videos for Link Up and SB and stuff. And so I'd, I'd started getting a little bit of popularity. And so I was almost like the gatekeeper for all these rappers. They wanted to get on SB TV. And I was like, all right, and I've got my links. I can put you on this channel, blah, blah. I kind of naturally progressed from doing silly videos on the estate with rappers like shaking the camera left or right and making it look edgy to doing music videos and creative stuff and so that that that's kind of where i learned how to direct shoot and edit my own work was just through that, that experience of doing youtube videos and then i mean i did that for like five years and then one day i was like you know what i'm 21 i'm 22 i need to i need to do something significant now and I'd always, I'd always been a writer. I was always like an English lit guy. So I'd always been writing creative works and poetry and spoken word. And I was just like, you know what? Let me combine it. Let me combine it and see what happens. So my first film, I just kind of put some spoken word together, did some visuals for it. It was like a showreel almost. Yeah. So I just kind of combined the spoken word with visuals and it, it just looked like a showreel. I think that was the first steps into making something narrative or experimental based that kind of led me down this route of, okay, let me write a story now and see if I can shoot something and edit and direct actors. A couple of years after that, started doing short films, started finding actors, started doing proper work. And then it led me into submitting to festivals. That's it really. So experimenting by trial and error, man. So Remy, you weren't, you weren't conscious of I'm actually, this is going to lead to me going to film school or anything like that at that moment. You were just hungry to just create, right? Yeah, I had no, no, like, I didn't even know what film schools were. And the funny thing is, I went to uh, Daly's last night with, um, where Thomason mm. was hosting Tyrell Williams and Sebastian Till. And we had this conversation about YouTube and, and how, like, at the moment, there seems to be no appetite for mockumentary. Hmm. Um, and back then, in like the late 2000s early 2010s there was like there was there was a lot of stuff going on it, it wasn't just hood documentary it wasn't just a dot's apprentice there was loads of sketch comedy shows on me on youtube and i think i was not a part of that because i wasn't doing comedy but i was a part of that hunger right? like loads of people quason matthews for example same kind of same kind of in that field we was all kind of doing that same kind of thing where it was just creating content and back then it wasn't called content mm. it was just like i just i've got this thing i want to make i'm gonna do it mm. and even sebastian was talking about how he made ados apprentice there's five episodes in like eight hours <laughs> and that's just because he wanted to do it i was hungry he had he had 10 hours of of time in that office bang it out let's just get it done you know so that was the mentality from early because you know I, I, I knew I knew no other way yeah. and Sebastian Till has obviously gone on and directed uh, the pilot for Dreaming Whilst Black and he's now doing is it did, did he do Supercell? Supercell and Riches on Amazon yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so he's obviously flying weren't, weren't you like on board to direct the Hood documentary or is that something we should not say? T Tyrell asked me to shoot it like and I don't, I don't know if he remembers this um, but <laughs> The, the funny thing is, I tell this story, I don't know if it's actually true, because it's been such a long time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but yeah, he, I remember he asked me to to be a part of it in some capacity. I don't know if it was to shoot it or not. Okay. And it's the same with um, 
with Ratman. Ratman asked me to to shoot Sharo's story way back when it first was Sharo's story one or whatever. Mm. And I I said the exact same thing to him where I was like, bro, I just don't think it's my bag. Mm. I don't I don't think I can bring anything to it that you know someone else could because it's it's not what I'm into. And also, I just didn't want to be boxed in as a DOP. I didn't want to just, I wanted to like tell my own stories. Um, That's the crazy yeah, thing about I'm, the pathway though, isn't it? Is that that was what, years and years and years ago. And if you'd said yes to that, you could have blown up and gone on a different path because you would have been attached to something which is popular. It's funny because realistically, I think if if I would have shot Shiro's story, you know, I would have gone on to shoot Blue Story. Yeah, uh, and that'd have been my my debut feature film with a DOP, mm. and I have no experience with the DOP. I wouldn't know how to light anything. I'd I'd have done a worse job than what they've done. Mm. Same with Hood documentary. When it went to BBC, I would have panicked. I I know I would have like messed it up. So it's just a bad timing, you know. Mm. It's, it's not my it's not my bag. I don't know how to book light and do all these other things. Now mm. I do, but you mm. know, ten years ago I wouldn't have done it. So. And so with your short films, if you could talk us through the journey of those, um, how you kind of set about making stuff outside and what was it that you weren't getting from just making them and putting them out into festivals and stuff, which made you make the decision to go to film school? I think everybody has this mentality when they first step into short filmmaking where like, okay, I'm going to get into Sundance. Someone's going to see my work. I'm going to get a feature film to go on Netflix. And it seems all so simple. Someone's going to see my work. That's that's the baseline of it. And I think everyone has that mentality when they go into it because it's such a simple premise. You put something out in the world, somebody out there is going to see it hmm. and it's going to be a domino effect. And the fact of the matter is, you know, film festivals get thousands of submissions. The internet's polluted with you know, millions of videos. It's, it's, I think I was caught up in this idea that one more film, like one more try at like getting into a big festival. And so I was shooting stuff by myself, sometimes with two or three people helping me, but I was always under this impression like that the, the work would do would be everything and, and, and the work would be enough, the talent would be enough, but I never had any understanding about the, the business of filmmaking or, or networking in any way. So I was always just making something that I would hopefully, hopefully get into a festival. And that was, that's, that was the only goal for me. And there, there was times where maybe one or two people saw something and, and then emailed me for a general meeting and it didn't, it didn't turn out like a genuine kind of, mm experience but you know I, I i just felt like after those six or seven years of making short films with that mentality and not having any significant progress in my career that there, there had to be like a, a a blueprint or a route that was bad and tested and i just think i had to be more business savvy and, and think more about the business of filmmaking because you were you were kind of like yeah, you were making films consistently and you almost like exhausted the limit of what you could do by yourself. Because I know you were like well respected within actor circles and sort of like indie filmmaking route. And didn't you have like Letitia Wright turning up to your uh, screenings and stuff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that was a <laughs> that was a matter of just like putting out so much work that like I'd worked with over um, maybe 300 actors, for example. 
Mm. And that wasn't just short films. That was like doing show reels as well. And so when I had like premiere screenings and stuff, they would bring their friends. And then, you know, because I was only working uh, with with no money and like the actors had to come up free, I, I was just always extending my network and mm. actors always wanting to work. So it, it, it comes to a point where you start getting these big stars like Letitia and Malachi uh samson ko as well malachi kirby right yeah malachi kirby um and so like you get all these people come in and you know they become your friends almost and so that that almost feels like a significant signal to like your progress as a filmmaker because you're you've got peers now that are in the industry bafta winning on regular tv work and so you start to like think okay i'm, I'm on the right path people are seeing my stuff but I don't I don't have any attention from agents. I don't have any attention from producers. I don't know any producers. I don't know any showrunners, for example. Mm. Nobody really knows who I am. And that was after doing extensive short films where like like you're saying, I, I feel like I exhausted myself with genre and and, and dra- drama writing because I'd I feel like I'd written everything. Yeah. And I, I guess like had you been applying for funding with BFI and things like this at, at that point because I think I referenced the, the Letitia Wright thing because this was years ago and I think then she was saying like there's a whole bunch of talented people coming up like have you seen Remy's films he's sick like why why are we not elevating people and this was ages ago you know what I mean yeah and that was I think that was in reference to um when people from Great Britain or UK gonna do something like Black Panther when are we gonna have like a UK version of that and she was just saying, yeah, like there are, there is possibility for the UK to do something like that, blah, 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 blah. There, and there are obviously also many other sick directors uh, that are now currently getting work and, you know, um, and on the up. But like you said, I don't, I just, I don't know, man, it's weird because I was applying for like funding and talent labs and stuff. And I think in hindsight, those applications were garbage because I had no idea about you know, having a good producer on board or, mm. you know, having certain names attached. I, it was just me. And I obviously I was like, oh, bro, I'm, I'm talented, man. Just give me the money. Like mm. I wasn't, I wasn't mm. thinking about, you know, being a business person and being political and like, you know, navigating that system. Where is it you grew up? Uh, I grew up in Birkin Green, Whitechapel. So, and, and you're from a working class background, yeah? Yeah, 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 yeah. A lot of our audience are sometimes on the fence with the younger ones or the early director ones, whether to go to film school or not. You know, you were saying that you applied for all these funding and you might not have known kind of like the right procedures or you might not have known like the right way to go about it. But at the end of the day, you know, growing up in Bethnal Green and coming from a working class background, it was just that, it's just that, you know, from all of us from working class backgrounds, when you don't have anything, it's just that hustle mentality of just make it happen and do it. Like, is anyone from your family in the film industry? I don't think I knew anybody, like, I just knew... And I think that speaks to the rest of the problem is that like if you're making films and you're kind of like making it work and you can clearly do it like to a good standard and you've got no one else to guide you to even show you a sense of what it should run like, what it should look like, like why would you then reach out to producers or know what a good producer does or any of these things to then kind of make BFI sit and take notice of like your filmmaking team when you're kind of not surrounded by people who are in that world. Um, or have any sense of the benefits of that when you're kind of doing it on your own. From what I've heard from people surrounding the, the BFI, their BFI funds now are like 
less so London and more outside, you know, of um, London and, and focusing more on stories that are coming from the deep, you know, ends of, of, of the, the corners of the United Kingdom. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, yeah, because... You know, and I guess the further you go out from London, it, it, this is similar kind of working class backgrounds you get because it's it, it's tough, man. I don't know, I don't know what to say to that. But also, my my kind of thought process had kind of changed by twenty twenty with like in terms of getting funding and 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 knowing producers. So when it came to like you know applying for like extra funds for trying to get into film school and paying that tuition. I was familiar with the Tower Hamlets and Canary Wolf uh, grant that was available, and it it was like five thousand pounds, and obviously that's a a drop in a pond or an ocean of sixty thousand for tuition. But yeah, you know that five thousand did did help in the long run. So there was little things like that where you become more savvy and you know you become more thoughtful with stuff that's available. What made you apply to the London Film School? And what were the challenges you faced in, well, what was the selection process like as well? Yeah, talk to me about that. I think I initially applied because when the pandemic hit, I was, I was about to do a job, a TV job. And it was like, it wasn't, it wasn't like I was booked for anything. It was more, more so that we was pitching and we was, we was on the verge of getting it green lit. And then that all kind of fell through because, because of COVID and everything got shelved or canceled. Was that drama work? Yeah, it was drama work. Yeah. Mm. And it was. It was like based in Detroit mm. and it was um, about a jewelry heist, almost like power, but mm. a bit more uh, heisty and drummery. Okay. Um, but anyway, so yeah, that, that all fell through. And around that time, I, f- I feel like everybody was applying for like universal credit. And, and there was like, I remember there was a time where people were, were like 70,000 in line just to make an application and so like there was this long process of waiting around for help from the government and when you don't have any jobs going around or any income it was just like it got to a point where I was like okay I I, I think I I should just apply for film school again and see if I can just use that as a safety net for the next two years because there's nothing I could do I'm not in a position where I can like I've got an agent or I can search for jobs that might come in in October to December or maybe even next year. So it was either just, you know, do that as a safety net or just carry on making short films during the pandemic or whatever for another two years. And I, I'd been applying to the NFTS for, for like, I think four years in a row. Mm. And I remember I got, I actually got in, uh, I got in for cinematography in 2017, I think it was. Stuart, I remember Stuart called me and was just saying, you know, like, I think you're a director. Mm. I don't think you want to be in a place where you're going to be telling other people's stories, especially when you're going to be branded as a, as a DOP. So you're then going to be pigeonholed into doing DOP work after you graduate, blah, blah, blah. So I had that in my head going like from 2017, I was like, okay, I'm focusing on special or specializing in, in directing. And then when I applied for, for LFS, it was a, it is a general filmmaking course. And I think that in, I think in hindsight, it did help me, but I was at a point where I wanted to specialize in directing and, and I wanted that kind of hands-on approach to like development mm. and at LFS, you don't get anything close to that. It's, it's literally just babying you through the, the, the kind of steps of becoming a filmmaker. 
it's like the the very basics. There's a, a very big difference to what I wanted um, and what I expected and what I actually got. And I guess like what what was the actual selection process? Was was like could you have applied and been rejected? They take on almost forty people every term, so that equates to like I don't know, one hundred and twenty, maybe maybe a little bit less, uh, one hundred and twenty people a year. Mm. Even in my interview, this wonderful uh, tutor called Angelina. She she's an editor. She's edited on uh, Teju's Tale by Teniola King, Charlene Wango's film Fields. Like she's also editing other stuff surrounding Kobe's DBK Studios, mm. and so she interviewed me for LFS, and she then also became my personal tutor, which was just crazy because she was the well one of two black uh, teachers at the school, and I was the only black person in my cohort. So mm. it it just felt very you know, personal, intimate, and I felt I, I just had such a, a good, comfortable introduction to school having her there. But we 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 had an interview process where she was just asking me random questions about about me, and she was she also said, "I think you're overqualified." So we got into that. We started talking about my experience, um, and then also on the flip side of that, what what makes me overqualified? Because what is the curriculum like? Mm-hmm. What 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 am I gonna be bored of in the first couple of months of school? What why would you say I'm overqualified? So it was about understanding the culture of school as well, you know, and, and just and just understanding when I actually got into school, interacting with the students that were in my cohort, they had come from undergrads of doing psychology, engineering, stuff like that, which had nothing to do with filmmaking. And sometimes some of these people hadn't made films before. So their experience of the first month or first two months of film school was they were making films for the first time. Mm. So there was no, there was no bar. There was, I put LFS or film school on a pedestal. And when I got in, I was like, oh, so everyone's just making films for the first time. That's not, Mm. and to be paying 60,000 pounds, you'd expect a more competitive environment where you could feel like, okay, I need to be on my A game. I need to like, you don't want to be the best one there. You want to kind of, like yeah other people to be better in specialisms and make you raise up yeah yeah yeah. because the element of competition does does up your craft yeah let me tell you my story of nfts because when i applied to nfts and i actually got the interview and i think a week before i I had a a meeting for the bafta scholarship and when i went into the bafta building it was full of light there was there was just sunlight everywhere there was air conditioning like the the panel was full of women it was just there was there was uh food and drink on the table so beautiful i thought like i'd been accommodated to and they respected me and i went into the nfts building and the blinds had been pulled down so it was like the dragon's (laughs) den and it was so intimidating i could even i could barely even see their faces it was like they were backlit yeah and the tv was playing behind me of all my work so they had like been referencing my work and I felt so scared Yeah, because they'd, they'd like been referencing old pieces of work. I'm like, how did you guys even, that wasn't in my application. Yeah, They'd done such like deep, deep dives and it was so scary. One of the scariest experiences I've had. It is pretty nerve wracking. And Oz, with the, the Diverse Directors Workshop, was there a selection process for that? Um, we did actually get an interview for the MA course as well. So I went through that as well. I was really intimidated. And my way to respond was, 
well, if you don't give it to me, I'm going to get there anyway. And he's right, they were, they were all, it was like a dark room and they were like sat around. It looked like something out of like Brazil, you know, that film. It felt like that. Mm. Um, I think it takes the pressure off if you kind of have a bit of that mentality and that like, I mean, maybe not say it, but if you have the thing in your head of like, this isn't necessary, but it's going to be helpful. Do you know what I mean? Because yeah. you'll still find your way into the same place as, as we kind of, you get told by anyone who's higher up and didn't get in. But I think the the prime it's now called like the prime video director's workshop. Yes, um, it is. Before we go on to fees and stuff, I think if you're not aware of that, I think that's an amazing initiative in that it's free <laughs> and it's twelve months and it's part time. So like with access and stuff, like these courses are expensive to do these MAs, but with that, it's something you can do alongside something else, and you make a film at the end of it, and they have a showcase and. There's people like, I think like John Ogans, um, who's just directed uh, Champion, which was produced by Joy. I think uh, he he kind of was part of that and then went on and did another one and it's all done really well. And it all came from that. I mean, Alice Seabright was on your iteration as well. Like it's a great platform. Annette as well, Annette Lofer was on mine as well. Yeah. Uh, Chris Chucky, the um, music video director, he was on ours as well. It's, it was a great step, great. It was a great stepping stone. Amazing, I, I loved it. Yeah, like if you can't afford to give up two years of your life to give to a film school and dedicate it to that, then that's like a great in between, um, and you still get like a similar platform, and you can still work with NFTS crew and stuff, um, and make contacts that way. So uh, once you got selected, I mean, what was the challenges which you faced? Uh, what what were you kind of thinking about? whether you should accept it or not what was your thought process um and i think obviously money was a big part of that i assume because i remember your GoFundMe. i think i looked at it now it's, it looks like it's sixty-five thousand four hundred thirty-eight total what is it's, i don't know but how much was your 60. um i think it was fifty-nine thousand. that's what i remember seeing okay oh man yeah i i remember being very like extremely stressed out about money um you know you, you have to pay off every term mm. so and because the two the two years is split up into six terms essentially you're paying 10 grand a term and so they always say like you have to pay the 10 grand off by you know week five for example mm. otherwise you get taken off the course or you have to defer to the next term so i had set up a gofundme page and you know was was seeking contributions from everybody and it, it i mean that that did help a lot because that was getting me onto like websites and into twitter conversations that just bolstered that platform so people there was just more eyes on it yeah it went around right because i remember seeing um i think Noel clark at the time i think pre whatever has happened um he kind of platformed it and didn't he donate like a bunch of money as well? Which kind of This is the thing. I, I always think about this because like no Clark donates five hundred pounds. He doesn't know me. Mm. And then that promotion then gets me like three thousand pounds because his networks have now supported me. I that I think that's crazy because that kind of speaks to like how promotion in the UK works as well. Mm. With like, you know, like you you might promote something and you know your followers might, you know, retweet it or whatever, but then random strangers will just find an affinity with you and all of a sudden it's it's gone from from like doing a hundred views to ten thousand views because strangers have seen your work mm. Mm. that whole experience was crazy man but i think um 
yeah, Noel Clark definitely helped me a lot with that. Um, and he didn't know me and we didn't really even talk. He just like exchanged a couple of tweets. With Kobe, initially, I, I had so much anxiety about it. I had to call him and ask him about it. It's just Kobe Adam, right? He's, yeah, Kobe Adam. He's directed like um, Noughts and Crosses and Top Boy. and Yeah, so I called him just to kind of ask him for advice and, and what he'd done uh, when he applied for film school because he, he comes from a similar background. You know, he grew up in Thamesmead and and we didn't have the money for it. And even to this day, if you asked him how he paid for it, he, he will tell you, bro, I don't know. God just made a way. <laughs> because I tried to ask him for like how he actually did it. How did you actually pay for film school? And he was like, bro, I never paid a penny. And he still, he doesn't give me an answer. So I think a lot of, a lot of it was just like, honestly, just like by having faith and like, and, and a lot of people just having faith in you. Yeah. And um, obviously the school uh, gave me a scholarship after they, after I'd paid off, I think, £15,000 mm. because the GoFundMe had raised 11000 and I got the 5000 from the Tower Hamlets Fund. So, you know, after all of that, they, they gave me a scholarship because uh, I wasn't able to pay off the next term for school. So that was another worry. I got to end of term one. Mm. I was like, that I'm going to have to defer or drop out now because there's no way I can then do another GoFundMe page or another run asking people for the same amount of money. Mm. Um, you know, and that, and I just, I said to the school, I had an honest conversation with them. I was like, I'm, I'm tried, you know, that, I, nothing else I can do now. I think also there was a lot of pressure from the producers and the Noel Clark network mm. that were talking badly about the elitism and you know the tuition fees mm. so there was a lot of pressure on them and then they kind of just you know gave me uh or they offered me a scholarship so it was, it was beautiful the way it worked out so I, I know that there's currently two scholarships available for every cohort mm. every every time someone every intake so every three times a year it'd be good to know if you could talk us through the curriculum a little bit uh, of, of like what the structure was like how many films you made and um what are the resources that you're given for for each one um yeah i guess i'll start with the second year because that's the most um simple but so the first year is term one to three and term two is term four and five and term six is kind of like its own year so it's like an extension because that's the grad film mm. so it's kind of like you graduate whenever you make it so you could take six months to make it um so you don't have to complete the ma in two years so this in the second year in term four five it's very production design heavy mm. and in term four you shoot black and white and in term five you shoot 15 minutes color on both of those terms it's a set build term, so it's production design heavy. You have to, you have to pitch um, to the, the rest of the cohort and the panel at school. You know, out of a, a cohort of thirty people, when you get to term four and five, when you pitch, only six films are selected. So, only six films or six six set builds get created, um, and then you go on to create your grad style in term six, which might take six to eight months or whatever, however long you take. Mm. In ter in the first year, when you when you very when you start off with the very first term, it's it's the same thing where you pitch to make a film. So in your cohort, only I think ten or twelve films get selected. Mm. But in that time, um, there's also little directing challenges 
and you're put into like uh, directing challenge units. So you get to kind of collaborate with new people mm. uh, with the iPhone, with a DSLR camera, whatever. Um, and in turn one and turn two, you create three minute films um, with turn one being black and white, term two being in color, but in term two or both terms, you shoot on a 16 mil. In term one, there's no, there's no audio, there's no dialogue no no sound so you have to create a film visually mm. and then when you get to term two there's no there's no sound but you have to do everything with foley so it's like you, you start to think about sound design you know in term one you start to think about tone and texture and and, and telling a story visually term two is the same but then you, you're thinking about sound design how to tell a story with sound design mm. and then that all kind of culminates into term four and five when you you go on to create these bigger 10 and 15 minute films and in between that we have term three which is documentary which they've taken away now mm. but that was for me it was kind of a break in the year because it it was so boring it, there's nothing about that that interested me whatsoever yeah did you get any money to to make stuff or was or was you kind of like flubbing together um, I think in term one, they give you 300 pounds or something. Mm. Um, and that largely just goes towards production design because you, they give you all the equipment, yeah. um, same with term two and then in, in term four and term five, where do you get the set build terms? They give you, I think 2000 and 3000 pounds. So that all goes towards, you know, the set build, basically all production design mm. and wardrobe. Because you, you you have to you know paint the walls and wallpaper the walls and get in furniture and go to you know prop houses and get props for the 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 set. So it it goes really quickly and and even on our short films that we've done with twenty thousand pound budget, mm. two thousand pound for production design goes so quickly and it's, yep. it it seems like it's a lot but it's not. So can you just talk about like how much budget they give you for? Um, you grad films because some of those NFTs ones, man, they're so high budget. Well, they look high budget. Uh, when I was there, it was maybe around grad film. I think you get, I'm pulling numbers out my ass, but it was anywhere between like 10 and 15K. And I think now that might've been bumped up to like 19K. But that's that's to then largely because across all these films, kit is covered, crew is covered because you've got every specialist, like 10 people on each course, um, like production design, 10 people, cinematography, etc from that you're pretty much just paying for production design props locations actors food and yeah and things like that so wait they give you nineteen thousand pounds for the grad film yeah yeah when that comes from i guess your tuition or yeah yeah basically like yeah so like you pay your tuition but you get a lot of money back through your films ultimately that's crazy because LFS give you, I think, just what around four thousand five hundred pounds for your grads. Mm, mm. So you you don't have that. That's why you see so many um, LFS grads doing kickstarters for like an extra ten thousand, twelve thousand pounds. It's wow. just four thousand five hundred pounds. Crazy. I think that's a bit of a crazy. Uh, I was yeah. That's, that, that's mad. That that that's, that's crazy. Especially if, you know with the fees being what they are. But you guys are wow. allowed to like put in your own money as well right because I, I this yeah part of like yeah. the nfts thing is that you're not allowed to if your family is fucking minted doesn't matter you can't then put in 30 grand to elevate your film or do something ridiculous or because you want to film in france you can't 
use family money to get everyone over there and film in your family chateau. Like you can't do that. It, is your crew getting paid? Uh, no, 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 because they're all students. So everyone, like they've got the AD course, they've got DPs, production designers, like everyone is is an FTS. Um, so that's a lot of money then. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it does work out like 50K plus, I'm sure. It's it's probably on board with like what the future takes thing was, you know, the um, yeah. the initiative they put on. That, that sounds so interesting and it's so exciting for me, it's, especially if I didn't go to film school. If I had just heard that, and like see your black face on the NFTS <laughs> website, I'd be like, yeah. I think what really drew me to it when I went to an open day was was the emphasis on performance. Basically, when you get there, you do like an induction month in the beginning, sort of like a couple of months before the course starts. And there you're pretty much just in a room, just learning, um, kind of deconstructing films uh, with Ian Seller, who we'll have on the podcast at some point soon. And you kind of, you learn about, you do like some theatre stuff. So they have like some theatre directors to bring in some actors and work with them to learn to break down scripts ahead of time. And they take you to like art galleries and and some like theatre shows and stuff like that during this month, just to kind of open your mind a bit. And I think like, I mean, you probably spend what the first couple months learning in that induction month, but after that, you're just making stuff. So it's same as, as, as your as a LFS and I think that's the key part of all of it is that when you're forced into making stuff whether you like it or not you're hitting deadlines and you're learning so much the the thing I learned most was about how to work with a team I think on the outside I I made like no exposure with like four or five people whereas like when you're making stuff with like 30 you need to be able to communicate a lot better I'm not sure if you found that the difference in terms of working with a team and how you communicate your ideas rather than just running in moving a camera yourself or editing something yourself i i think i i i think i disagree a little bit because i think it's about the high you, you have to learn the hierarchy of people to talk to mm. and i think i learned that i only ever talk to my my dop or cameraman or camera woman and my first ad sometimes if my editor was on set i talk to my editor but that was basically it. I did talk to anybody else about anything. So it actually became quite easy because I, like beforehand when I was making films, I was on the fly just doing things by myself. Mm. So I'd be on the camera and I'd go and change the boom. I'd have to like look at the scripts and give script notes and then go back to the camera. And it's just stupid. And yeah. compared to now, it's like, okay, I'm just sitting here waiting for the lighting set up. So I've got to wait another half an hour to do my farms. Yeah. And then talk to the DOP or first AD and then just shoot. And I see it, same, same goes again. So I did another half an hour waiting. Mm. So for me, it was just about learning the hierarchy of who to talk to. For me, it was when I was on set, I was like, oh shit, I'm just like, sometimes I was just on my phone. Cause I was just like, you're just waiting around for shit to I happen. So, listen, <laughs> my grad film, I was so bored. And I, I remember going out to my actors and cause actors are so used to just, you know, doing a take or two takes and going back to the green room. And I'd be in the green room with them and they'd be like, this is what you lot do all day on set, just sit here doing nothing. Cause I'm, I'm used to being so proactive. Like I had to change the camera lens and do all this stuff. As a director, all your work is in prep. Remy, I had a question for you. When you were coming up and you were doing all your, um, you know, prolific short filmmaking before you went to the LFS, like who, who were your influences? Who were you looking up to? 
um, in cinema, but also, you know, anyone in your peers that you were looking up to as well? When I started actually making films, I was so obsessed with Vimeo. And I think Vimeo stayed so consistent in terms of its like outreach, engagement, and inspiration because you can find everything on there and there's such good content on there. And it, it feels like a place for filmmakers to really kind of express themselves and, and not feel like you have to put out content in quotation marks. Because um, I feel like YouTube is, you know, a place for sketches and, and like the mockumentary style stuff we was talking about. So Vimeo was my, my first point of contact. And I remember coming across an actor, director called Eric Kalelas. Forgive me if I'm pronouncing your name wrong. Um, but Eric made a film called 50 Pence or something, something around that line. I think it was 50 Pence. And it was shot in like Paris or, or Amsterdam somewhere. It just looked so cool. And it was just all about him like he was directing it but he was acting in it as well mm. and it was about him and this girl and this 50 50 pence piece that he'd gotten from his dad or something i can't remember where it was ages ago and i remember watching all of his stuff and being like oh i want to make stuff like eric man. and then years later i had you know I was, I was shooting films i was doing premieres for my films in uh mm. in genesis cinema because you know there was a there was a time where i was shooting you know upwards of 10 films a year sometimes and i would hire out genesis cinema invite everyone down and show four or five films and it'll, it'd be like a black tie event you know everyone dresses up there's a red carpet there's press and there's like pictures being taken and it felt very proper and i remember i don't know if it was the first one i ever did or the second one but eric came down and i was so blown away because again that's like a moment where you go oh my god someone mm. significant is like seeing my work and he, he was someone i looked up to a lot and you know there's other people like sebastian till like quaso matthews for example people who are just just hungry and making such good work and so i was just i was just inspired by all these people and i think i just kind of wanted to be in that realm of, of people making stuff so that 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 nicely segues onto this next question which is you know, going to the LFS, you know, what, what what were your biggest learnings? You know, a lot of people ask me about, you know, whether or not film schools are worth it or not. And I think the, the network and the, I'd say the resources, but take it with a pinch of salt. Um, the network is probably the biggest thing you take away. I don't know if it's the same for you, Marcus, but like for me, you know, being in the school, I think because obviously this, with the intakes being so large, you, you meet hundreds of people every year at LFS. So there's there's always people available to be your gaffer, be your spark, be an editor in abundance. So you meet so many people and you get to work with so many people as well. Mm. So you, there, there's, a, there's a sense of collaboration in LFS that's, I think, kind of unparalleled. And you also get to learn how you collaborate and and almost like a, a like a romantic relationship. You learn how to be loved and how you want to be loved. So it's like that. You, you learn how to, you want people to collaborate with you. And so you kind of find that in a pool of, you know, 300 people, there must be a handful of people that work in the same style as you or, mm. you know, that, that way that you want to be worked with. So 
you just find those people and it is true you know you do find your tribe and then you stay you kind of stay attached to them and that's what i'm doing now mm. you know moving on from being my grad school i'm i'm attached to these people who i love to work with and we're not necessarily best friends yeah it is a working relationship but we just get along so well with each other yeah it just makes sense to keep that collaboration going you know no same exactly the same there's 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 people that I worked with across uh, multiple films and just uh, the people I work with now or working with now on like my current Disney project and, and I plan to work with them in the future just because it just just works. And I think filmmaking is so difficult that once you find people who are good humans, good at the job, and you kind of understand each other's tastes and that aligns with what you all want to do, it's like you should cling on to that because, yeah, it gets harder to find that the higher up you go. The thing is, though, that it's 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 such a tough thing to to say in response to that question because that kind of network shouldn't be only accessed by sixty thousand pounds. Yeah, you know, because that that is just meeting people. Yeah, and it's not like there's particular skills or like you know, it's not there's no particular skill that's being gatekept from us. But I pay the sixty thousand pound. You, you're not going to know how to direct an actor. Mm. I'm now producing a short film by my niece. She's never directed before, mm. um, but I'm kind of teaching her how what I've learned. And like, you know, I've in my time at LFS and the three years I've been there, I think I only really had two or three directing actors workshops mm. where you get hands-on experience with experienced actors. But a lot of my experience comes from just, you know, my past experience working with actors and also now this experience at film school. And so like, I'm now, you know, passing down information that shouldn't be a thing where like this elitism conversation comes in 60,000 pounds. That shouldn't be gatekept. I don't think. No, I, I would maintain that I still learn a good 70, 80% of my, of my knowledge from the internet. I, I maintain that yeah. for sure. I, but wow. I just, I, I was just walking around with all this and I would nowhere to apply it because it's the resources that I just didn't have access to. And also like, I'm not a sociable person. I can't do that. I can't rally people up to get involved in a project. All I could do was like, like write something really amazing and like try and attract people to that project. That's all I could do. And I think when I went to film school, like that then was like, everyone was obligated to work with me. <laughs> so I could then work with these <laughs> collaborators and they had to. But yeah, I think otherwise, like on the outside, the, I, I mean, I still go to like, uh, like actors workshops and stuff and just observe because how people sit together um, and like speak to each other and navigate like just to understand the language and how people work that's a directing skill you can go out and learn just by going to these places which are all readily available and cheap or you can just ask and be like I'm a director can I observe and they say yes that's that's, that's literally it there's so many people that are willing to do shit one thing I wanted to add as well is like one thing I did learn from film school was just my my capacity for stillness mm. and learning how to be more thoughtful in storytelling. So like going back to turn one and two where you, you don't get any dialogue or don't get any sound and you have to tell a story through silences and blocking and all these things, that experience definitely has shaped the way now that I tell stories like in my grad film for example there's a lot of scenes where there's no dialogue and now I'm leaning into that so much more because I that's where 
I love to tell stories now. It's like, I've experienced that. I had the the freedom and the facilities to kind of experiment at film school with no judgment. There's no pressure to put it out online or people to see it. So you, you, you then experiment with stillness and silences and different ways to tell story. And that then becomes part of who you are, like how I am now. It's, yeah. That's that's all I want to do. Yeah. And that's kind of it, isn't it? It's like you get put in a place where you have to make stuff. You challenge your ideas. And for me, it was like the security of like, if I was on the outside and I got some BFI funding to make my short, there's so much pressure on that to do well, to get more money afterwards. Because if it doesn't, then why is that going to happen? Whereas like at film school, like I knew I could make something that was absolute trash. Like the retreat was an exercise and I knew that I had a grad film, which I was going to make straight afterwards. So there was like, there was no pressure. Like I could fuck so many of the films up and know I'm still going to make more afterwards, which is a luxury of being there, I think, um, in these places. I think I think, I think, think this is a question I want to ask both of you, right? To be devil's advocate with this. Because obviously, you know, on the podcast, we're like, our, our philosophy is you're going to get to where you're going to get to regardless and you work hard. Yep. But, but Remy, you were prolific in just working persistently before going to the LFS, right? And that's what we always badger on on this on the on on this uh, podcast. Go out and make things. You're a filmmaker. Go out and make films, which is what you did. But someone looking at your journey, and so they're not going to be able to say get a scholarship for sixty bags or or or, or do a GoFundMe. Or if someone looks at that, what would your advice be to them? You know, you just spoke about that stillness because. I'm guessing that when you were doing the short films that you were doing before, you were creating and creating and creating. Was there a, a learning to each one that you were doing that you were applying? Or was it the learning that you learned on the film school that you got that, that, that made you be more mature in your storytelling? I think when I, before film school, I was always trying to do something better. Every film I did, whether that was lighting or dialogue. And I think I came from a point of view of, Quentin Tarantino makes dialogue-heavy films. Let me make dialogue-heavy films as well. Why not? And so I was I was trying to make better dialogue. I was trying to light better. You know, I only had ever had like one or two uh, RGB LED tubes that were just like key lights. I, and they didn't have no feel. I didn't have no back, nothing. So like, that's what kind of got me to a place where I was you know, I've been respected by actors and people in my network because I was always trying to tell authentic stories with limited resources and just trying to just be put black people on screen in a very beautiful way. And so my experience, and I think, you know, everyone always hears this, but everybody's route is so different. And I would say, try everything because as much as I, because I pretty much have, I've like done it by myself and then I've gone to film school. I'm probably still going to be doing a little bit of both now, like doing it by myself and with crew from now on, but try everything. I, I even recently got two contradictory pieces of advice from two very established filmmakers who are fr- my friends recently. And I was just asking them for advice on what to do post-grad and, you know, what this what the steps are moving forward with my career because I, I, at the moment I'm waiting around for film festivals and I don't know if I should be doing something whether that whether that's like emailing agents or producers or trying to get on sets and 
one of them was like, you know, you want to make films, write your film, try and ship it, shop it around, go and make that film. Because if you go and work on sets, if you try and get experience elsewhere, if you try to do commercials just to make money, you're going to be doing that for a long time. Mm. Just make your film. And then the other person was like, bro, email everyone, try and get in the door. And so, you know, that's, they're just two different perspectives of this, of the same industry. You know, people, people do it differently. I'm probably going to do both if I can. Yeah. I'm still going to be working on my film, but I'm going to try and email everybody. The same thing, you know, for people listening, just try everything, but there's no one specific route. You don't go to film school and then magically become a director of TV within a year. So just, just do everything. Try to collaborate with as much people as possible. Whatever, man. Like, and Ma- and Marcus, same question to you. So you, you did three films at... Uh, I can only talk about it from my perspective, but for me, it was like I saw my ideas as currency. So I'd just write, write as much as I could and have like shorts backed up, ready to go and also like feature ideas, like moving mm. i'd write stuff of various ambition so that depending on what drops you know where you go next so you're almost like creating a bit of a pathway for your own projects that's what i'd say um so i i did a lot of that i was doing comedy sketches with people because you can shoot a couple in a day and just it, it doesn't matter about production value with comedy because as long as it's funny it's fine so i used to do that stuff and then my day job was was like video producing and it was for a small company. So I was doing everything. I was like directing and stuff. Um, so I was just trying to make sure that every project I did was like creatively interesting, even though it was like dry and people in rooms, I'd try and put a spin on it, which would kind of make it more creative or like be somewhat risky and try and add some sort of emotion to it or something like that, which would kind of like be creative with the brief. And I was always like shooting and working with people to execute those. So it was like, even now, like this whole thing, like I've, I've shot our film and right now, technically, like I've done my tutoring stuff. I don't, other than a bit of editing here and there with the the short, I don't have anything to do other than write my own projects. And I've, we're doing a whole podcast like to keep moving. So I think as long as you're always making stuff and always being mm. visible that you're making stuff without just like saying, oh, I wrote this script today, page 90. Like, do you know what I mean? Like... <laughs> As long as you don't do shit, because that doesn't mean anything to anyone. Like, as long as you're doing the thing and just kind of like dropping the bombs, like on socials, that's what I always tried to do is like, I, I stopped talking about stuff I was doing. I would only talk about it when it's done. Um, and I still do that. I only talk about stuff when it's like a concrete thing and just kind of release it into the world. And then it, it attracts people and makes people think that you're doing stuff. Brilliant. I think, I, th- I think, um, thanks both of you for that. Um, I, th- I think it's really important to sort of like get, you know, underneath the surface and get those kind of conversations out to our listeners. Let's let, we, you know, we, we got questions and things from different people. So we got some listener observations and thoughts. So the question you put out there, Marcus, was? We kind of just threw out to the audience what they want to know about film school or the pathway into it. Is it necessary? Like, we just want to get a sense of what people don't know about it. So this one is, I always find this conversation interesting about film schools because it doesn't matter if you go or not, you still end up being a director, cinematographer, art director, and so on. The film school and the students just use each other. Yeah. I don't think they mean that in a mean way. I guess the meaning, as in you, yeah, with each other. Yeah, uh, there's the whole thing about why don't you just use the money? Like, why don't you just take that sixty grand and just make some films of it, Remy? Why don't you do that? 
And it's just like, I think if you could, if you're going to take the film school fees and just go and make stuff, you need like another 10 people from each discipline to also like do the same. But that's kind of not how it works because it's only really going to elevate the director and the potentially the writer and potentially a producer, but mainly the director. I think that argument doesn't hold up. But also there's, yeah, ultimately like everyone's going to end up where they're going to end up if they work solidly in one direction. It doesn't kind of matter how you get there. I think you wrote down a little anecdote about this, haven't you, Oz? Yeah, I, which I'll, I'll I'll share in a second. Remy, did you have any any comments on that? Yeah, I think I think that's just the basis the basis of any kind of business, right? You're you're using each other, yeah, but like it's familiarity and it's like tit for tat. So if I and also it's just about believing in people. So like for example, you know the the producer Daniel got right. Mm-hmm. Screen star of tomorrow. She she's incredible. Yeah. I, I even as like just human, I fuck with her so heavy. And I don't even really know her too tough. We've been in the same events and stuff, whatever, but we've never really like sat down and chat. But just for example, say if I wanted to make a film with her, it's so much more of a harder sell at the moment to try and get her on board because there's other stuff going on in her life. But with with the producers that I've worked with through film school, they might be a screen star tomorrow next year. Mm. Who knows? And then by that time, I'm like, I could just drop a message or WhatsApp and be like, bro, let's work on something. I've got something. And they'd be like, yeah, let's do it. Mm-hmm. There's there's no doubt of that in my mind because of that familiarity and like growing together. So it's, it's just about the people you work with. And if, you, if you're using them, fair, fair, fair game. You know what I mean? Mm. Yeah, it is. It's a trade. It's a trade, isn't it? Because because it's your talent and their talent. Exactly. All right, that's good. This is from an NFTs grad, so this is what they said. I guess with the NFTs, it is a privilege that can be obtained, but it isn't a guarantee of success. But it is elitist based on meritocracy. It's like the Hunger Games, where you have this obtainable elitism. And 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 the point I have with that is, is that. Me, me and Marcus met some met some pretty big directors. I don't want to I don't want to I don't want to say who they are, but me and Marcus were together. And we met a couple of big directors, and both of them separately were like, "Oh, you know, we were rejected from the NFTs." And we were like, "That's not, you know, that's not a, what, what you're on about. Like, you've been rejected. Why is that the first thing you're saying to us? That's not anything to say." And I and Marcus has done the MA. I've done a smaller course. I'm like, "That's him, not not me, right?" They were just like, "Yeah, we're just saying, you know, we've been rejected." <laughs> so the moral of the story is, yeah. you've got to where you want to get to. Yeah, it's a whole thing. There's, I think. There was a Edgar Wright masterclass when I was at film school and said the same thing. Like, oh, you didn't get into NFTS. Christopher Nolan, same thing. But it's like, <laughs> does it matter? Does it actually matter? They still found their way in. And to be honest, like, I mean, probably Nolan more so than, than Edgar, but like, I can't imagine Edgar Wright making NFTS films. You know, at LFS, yeah, we have, we have like this unspoken beef with NFTS. That's only because, and I don't even think NFTS people even even care <laughs> about LFS people, even know about LFS people. That's the funny thing. We see masterclasses like you said, Edgar Wright, uh, Phoebe Waller Bridge, Ricky Gervais. You know, during the pandemic, we were seeing all these big names, mm. David Fincher, and we were getting uh, assistant producers and like, you know, assistant DP, camera trainees, and directors that had retired 10 years ago. 
we, nobody knew their names. And so like we're getting really bad masterclasses where it's basically just old war mm. stories. People talking about their, their time with uh, Dame Judy Dench on set. Like that's not helpful mm. at all. So like, I, 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 even from people at LFS, we looked up to NFTS like, oh my God, you know, they're, they're, they've got Oscars and BAFTAs and Spirit Awards in their mm. reception area. You know, we just had posters of films <laughs> of directors that, you mm. know, worked on stuff. And the, the, the difference is so crazy because we see people graduate NFTS and moving on to bigger things, whereas LFS grads, you know, you, you might see one or two, a handful, you know, every couple of years because it's so, the, the pool is, is not very, you know, healthy compared to yeah. NFTS. Um, well, I guess like to touch on that point, we might kind of be jumping ahead, but it is the similar, it's a similar thing with NFTS in that like, there's only one or two people a year that do really well. I'm talking about from the directing course and that's even like, if that, so like they, they do a good job of like marketing and like elevating and talking about the wins and stuff. And they're, they're good with like sharing the alumni stories. And, but ultimately like I am one of like eight directors and I know like, I mean, even now, like I'm, I'm perceived to be doing very well, but it's still tough. Um, I've still not even directed anything yet. I've got no like actual credit, which I'm still seen as a risk. And I think it's the same with other people in my year. The year above me, no one has directed anything yet. Um, and they've they obviously been out in the industry for three years. And I think even the year above that, I'm not sure what's going on there. Like it it it's there's there is like a strong perception and like I think even of this year's cohort, like Musa, uh Alderson Clark, who I'm sure will get on at some point, he's he just got into Cannes. But I'm intrigued to see where his career goes from next and what that looks like off of the back of such a big win. because um, yeah, like the the perception is one thing, but the reality is, again, it's it's all very very slow. My, I think, Marco, you, you say that, yeah, but I've got first hand experience of being <laughs> with you and seeing your NFTS like grads, and then you guys are talking about what agents have signed you and stuff. And like, you know, like that seems like such a bigger bar compared to like when I meet with NFS people, we're just talking about, you know, we're we're basically just bitching about other grand people who are doing successful like being with you and seeing your 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 peers you know from nfts and mm. seeing the bar i think for me is like yeah. incredible it is it is a special place in that there's a lot of people who who do go and do amazing things i think what it is for directors it's perceived that there is big wins but yeah like i think the first five years after film school is like very precarious for a lot of the directors like some people direct stuff some people just don't um i'd be intrigued to know what like the the hit rate is for for directors sort of like dropping out actually of the industry from that point because it's i think once you leave you're then hit with the same problems which kind of most people are facing is that cool you got all these shorts but what next do you know to, do you know to make a, a comparison to a, a conan lyric he says, people say that money doesn't buy happiness, but if I'm going to be unhappy, I'd rather be unhappy in a Range Rover. Oh, man. I think about it all the time. And it's the same thing as in, like, if you're going to be a director that's out of work trying to get in the industry, it's better to have the NFTS badge <laughs> on your chest than, than it isn't. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> that, that segues nicely into the next one. This is actually from an NFTS grad. The NFTS was brilliant for my 
for expanding my network and my directing reel, but I don't feel like it prepared me for the realities of working in the industry. I came out of film school feeling quite lost and it took me four years to find my feet again. I guess my question would be, should a film school just focus on honing your craft or should they prepare you for a career in filmmaking? I think these two are very different objectives and are potentially at odds with each other. For what it's worth, my answer would be, so they've asked a question and now they're answering, their answer is, film school should only be about craft and they should be very clear that they can't help you with your career. That is all on you. This way, students would not have expectations that film school would progress their career, which would make them more proactive and more or less likely to hustle like hell. This particular individual is, is, is in the industry, but they're not doing the actual course that they did. What goes on with the grads uh, at LFS? Because there's, there's a, a dude, I can't remember his fucking name, but he just did a film with Bill Nye called Living, right? He also did a, a film called Moffy. Oliver Hermanus? Oh, yeah, he did a masterclass recently. Yeah, yeah, he's from LFS and he's like just been Oscar nominated, right? Um, yeah, I mean, the, I think the reason why I think that's nonsense, right? I mean, is because that doesn't, that takes away the pre prestigiousness of film schools and the mis the mystery of film school, I guess, because you go there for a significant stepping stone in your career. And if it was marketed as like, okay, you're going to learn the skills of filmmaking, and we're going to let you go, then, you know, you can do that anywhere. You can do that. That's, they wouldn't, I, I think if, if you're going, if you're paying so much money, you should have a more hands-on one-on-one -on -one approach to your career. Like LFS don't do a good job at honing talent and, and kind of keeping talent close and developing them post-grad because there's just so many people and there's not enough staff. And I think that that would be the ideal, you know, you, 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 you get, you get development, you get taught how to do something. And then when it comes to grads, we're going to teach you how to maneuver through the industry with this mm. West that you've cultivated and give you that, the, the blueprint or, you know, other people, examples of other people's roots, people who you should get con connected with, who maybe have graduated before. Cool. Uh, next one. If you can't afford to go, how do you supplement your learning? YouTube. <laughs> I, think <that's, laughs> I think that's it. YouTube podcasts. So I think this podcast, I would say, is like born out of all the shit that I didn't learn at film school. Uh, that's that's literally where it's coming from. So like you could pay all the money and you wouldn't learn what we're teaching you here, basically, like in terms of like exactly how producers operate in the industry, exactly how you should be working with first ADs, how you work with I guess like, well, we're going to try what, how film festivals work and stuff like you're kind of cut off from that whole process. Agents as well. Like a lot of the learning you either get from your peers or from your own experience of just doing stuff. Um, but beyond that, you're kind of, yeah, like it's all about being engaged in the industry, um, listening to as much as you can, absorbing as much as you can, like reading, watching. So you can do all of that stuff without being at film school. So what you did, Remy, you kind of worked with a lot of actors and kind of built your network that way. Like just get in with actors, go to acting workshops and go to these places, watch as much theater as you can. Yeah, and just try and make shit. Like that's, do everything around it. I, I think I went to film school because I think it, it just gave me the opportunity to, to make stuff, but I would have done it regardless. It would have just been much slower because the, the knowledge base was already there. So I think, 
that's all you can do really. And I think also off the back of that, that, that in my experience at the film school, there have been people who kind of seep into production from a, the exterior of LFS. So there's been, you know, a spark or first AD that come from London Street Academy or UAL because they know people that's on the production and they then become a spark. And then all of a sudden they're being asked to be sparks on other people's grad films or, you know, other LFS productions. And they're learning from the gaffer or the DOP on those productions. And then they eventually then become the gaffer and then the DOP or whatever, whatever route you want to take. But those people are, are basically just forcing themselves into those productions and getting a kind of, you know, network, um, reward of film school just from, you know, becoming a spark or a runner or something on those sets. So that is kind of a, a sneaky way in because even with, um, with Casey, my niece, who I'm producing her short film, she's never directed before, but like the crew that I built around her are all LFS people currently in LFS in term two or three or graduates. So there, there's a network now that she's got and she's being kind of, you know, helped by, because there are people at LFS as well learning. So she's going to be almost doing a kind of similar thing with them and collaborating with them in the future. So just about, you know, networking, man, and getting yourself in, mm. into places. It's not hard. Yeah. You just have to get out there. I think I think that that, that I think that is it, Marcus. I think those are the last two questions. We've really answered them in the in the yeah, discussion. Yeah. I mean the other one was the the final, final, final question, which is just a, a big old debate. Do you think that you have to go to film school? <laughs> no. no. In twenty twenty three, no. Yeah. I I I don't think so either. So I, I think my philosophy on the NFTS, because I applied twice, right? When I applied the first time, I did it because like I didn't know anything about the industry and I thought that's what you had to do to then become a director. And I got rejected, didn't even get an interview. The second time I applied just because I thought, fuck it. And I was already made up my mind I was going to get into the industry one way or another. And I just made my first film myself. And then I had interest from people to give me money to make the next thing. I didn't necessarily need to go there. But I think what it gives you is like at this point, maybe four years on from that point, I might have made like one, possibly two films outside of it, I think, like by this point, where the reality is I've made like four and I've shadowed on House of the Dragon for 18 months in between because because of going there. I think in the two years of going to the NFTS in particular, I think it probably gives you the ability to push down like four to five years worth of learning into two years but i think that's it that's that's the way i look at it I don't know. but otherwise like you're st still gonna make shit remy yeah i guess i agree i'm not i got nothing really to add to that i think um i mean if you if you've got retired rich parents then you know why not because i've got my I, i've seen so many people who have like retired parents who are just like paying their hobbies basically their, their kids' hobbies. You know, some people who, who who have even completed the two years made a grad film and said, you know what? During lockdown, I found that I've got, like, passions for something else. And, you know, they go on to just do in, uh, their Facebook business, for example. Yeah, it's just kind of crazy how people can just kind of use that money and that privilege and not, yeah. you know, take advantage of it. I think, I, th I, think, I think my last thing on this is that 
I remember, if, you know, way back in Catherine Goldsmith's episode, I can't remember which episode it was, uh, BSC, cinematographer in House of the Dragon, and she said, because she's American, that what happens is over here is that when people see Roots into film school, they automatically think that is the only way. But really, it's not about that. It's about, well, how, you know, how much persistence have you got? How much determination have you got? How much tenacity have you got? How much sort of like, as Rocky says, you know, it's not about... It's not about getting knocked down. It's about how hard are you getting back up once you are knocked down because you're going to get rejected left, right, right and centre in this game. You, you're going to make a film. It's going to be fucking shit. It's going to annoy you. It's about, well, do you keep coming, keep coming back? And when you actually look at people who have made films, one that's springing up in my head straight away is Sound of Metal. That guy spent 10 years being broke trying to make that film work. It's always an arduous and long journey, but it's about, well, how persistent are you? Are you going to stay on that? You know what? what I wanted to add something as well. Is like, I think you're so right. You see people say that they went to film school and then you say, you know, you automatically think that's a route, that's like the, the best route into the industry. And, you know, you don't, like you were saying, you can, if you've got the, the tenacity, the persistence, the motivation to go and network and like meet people and be proactive in talking to people, whether that's online or in person, you can make that that work for your your career can then have like major stepping stones within a significantly lesser time than film school but if you're like me for example and you don't necessarily <laughs> want to talk to anybody and you know you you don't want to network and even if you do go to social events you don't talk to anybody you so that it's kind of like what do you expect to happen because it goes back to what i was saying about making films and waiting for someone to see it it's like you have to be proactive. If you if you don't take routes, then how are you going to get to your destination? You just have to be proactive, be you know persistent. Yeah. Persistence beats resistance. And you're you're almost like from outside an institution as well. Like you did the access program, but beyond that, you've kind of done it on your own, haven't you, Oz? I'm intrigued to know. Like, was film school ever really in your head? And um, yeah, what's your perspective on it? Because I've got three kids that are financially dependent on me, I couldn't. I said to them in that, I, maybe I should have kept my gob shut, but I did say to them, I said, I've got three kids, I don't know if I can even afford to come down to Beaconsfield, if I'm being honest. That was a big factor. So I think that the only thing that's in my control, like I mentioned before on this podcast, is craft. If you hone down and you hone in your craft, because you, you, that's in your control, you just keep keep, keep doing that and keep trying, keep trying to network and do the hustling. You know, I think I was saying to you back in one of the episodes back in Janu January, I was saying I've been trying to speak to someone for like mm. two months. I only two weeks ago managed to get that pin that exec down mm. to a Zoom. Mm. And it's been five months. You have to be persistent in knocking on people's doors. If that's what you want to do, like what Remy's saying, it's not for everyone to necessarily be like that. Yeah. But but you're good at that. You don't seem to have that thing in your head which tells you that you're being annoying. So you just kind of <laughs> you end up going on sets and like shadowing. It's, it's, it's probably because I'm old. It's, it's probably because I'm older. It's like I'm even die or die trying one of the other. Yeah, but it's good. It's good. You you kind of you you've you've done like more shadowing since leaving. I think you managed to get on a set like quite soon after finishing House of the Dragon. Just getting on an, another set. Yeah, yeah. I went on to the Winter King, which is coming out soon on ITV. And I'm and I'm still doing that now. Like I'm in I'm in talks right now to try and get on something to have a to have a, just to have a little sneak peek. I just want to be around because above the line, it's not like when you're below the line, you can go from job to job to some degree. But you can't do that above the line to get on a set. You've got to really you've create your own set. And if you want to go on a bigger one, you got to try and like go and shadow on them. Yeah, That's yeah. What you're gonna do. And uh, actually, for people who are listening and you know early directors or young directors 
We'll put the links to the brochures for LFS and NFTS in the show notes so that they can have a look at it if they want. Do the thing. Ah, that was a good chat. Thanks for that, uh, Remy. Yes. So we'll move on to our final section, which is Nugget of the Week. Me and Oz consume so much content each week from across the internet and, and just generally in life. And uh, we'd like to throw that back out to the audience. And so we'd like to ask you, Remy, what has inspired you this week? I'm going to be cheeky. I've got two. Um, we'll cut one out on the edit. <laughs> <laughs> one of them is, um, it's called a book called The Scent of Flowers at Night by Leila, uh, Leila Slimani. Um, and I'm only halfway through it, but I have to, I, it just, it resonates with me so much. I think it will resonate with a lot of writers um, because it, at the moment, I don't know how it's going to end, but at the moment it's talking it's kind of like in prose so it's it's almost like a diary entry it's like about her experience writing a book and having writer's block and and then the first couple chapters which really resonated with me was about the power of saying no and using loneliness uh mm. to, to, to basically write and that ability of saying no comes in different forms whether that's no to your vices, no to same uh, when your friends are calling, no, no to notifications, um, and so like that experience. I think her experience of of writing this feels very raw and very insightful, and it's 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 actually quite inspiring as a writer going through mm-hmm. currently writing a feature film. So that's been very um, insightful. The other thing has been a video about um how they edited a film called missing okay and the the actual title of the video is called what editing a big movie looks like and it's a 15 minute video basically about um how they edited this film and i'm not sure if you both of you have seen the film searching yes that's that found footage right um and it's kind of like all based on uh, like this, it's all based on screen so like an iPhone screen a MacBook screen uh, FaceTime calls coming on the screen he's missing with the one so... with um, Zendaya's sister in it from Euphoria no the, the, this, the, the new one yeah, is called Missing got, and that's, it's that's got, I think it's got, got her, her in it. it yeah so this new one uh, Storm Reed is the lead I need a long face on one and this the, in this 15 minutes it talks about their editing process but like it's not conventional editing it's kind of like compositing in a way because they're basically taking um what's the word uh like what's the word in vfx when you oh clean plate mm-hmm. so they'll get a clean plate screenshot of like a screen and then get another kind of clean plate of like you know file explorer and so they have all these elements of what actually goes on a screen and then they can they can manipulate in different ways to tell a story in the film. And it's so interesting of how they basically made this film just from just from editing. There's no there is obviously footage from like bones and stuff, but conventionally it's so different to how we'd make a film. So it's just really an eye opener to how if you've got editing in mind, you know, before your film starts you know with previs and stuff like that it really does help you you know when it comes to production what about yours mine is a podcast 
funnily enough, it's actually somebody who's currently at the NFTS, but before they got into the NFTS, after applying for many years, they couldn't get in. And during the pandemic, they started a podcast, which really helped me. And it's a filmmaker called Harry Sheriff, that's from uh, yeah. uh, Manchester, and his podcast is called Harry's Podcast. Mm. And honestly, like through the pandemic, it kept me sane. Uh, and he knows this because I used to just like <laughs> hound him. And I just kept, I just kept listening to him because he was going through a lot of frustrations as a filmmaker, uh, a lot of self-doubt, and he was just so candid about the way he spoke spoke about it. And I think it's really important um, for people to try and have a, have a listen to a couple of episodes if you're going through similar things um, because he, he, he's really open about how he's, he's done it. And then straight after he got onto the NFTS, and it's funny now, if when you go onto any podcast platform and you type in Harry's with an apostrophe S, Harry's podcast, um, it says inactive because obviously he's at the NFTS mm. now uh, and he's doing that. Um, but yeah, it's a great podcast. Do have a listen he's, to it. He's great. And yeah. what about you? No, so I was just going to talk about Harry. He's, he's like a great filmmaker and he's, um, it, he, he was a self-starter and in this, similar to, to you, Remy, like he kind of exhausted everything he could possibly do with very, very limited resources. And it, it was like, if he ever wants to get to any sort of like next level, it's like, that's just the way to do it. Even he's given a shit ton of money from a funder, which doesn't exist, or he go to, to a place like this and you get surrounded with a crew um, and then you start making stuff. So um, yeah, he's, I'm sure there's lots of exciting stuff to come from him. And yeah, for me, there was a, it's also a podcast. So I don't think I've platformed it yet. So it's Best Girl Grip Podcast uh, from Nicole Davis. So it's a weekly podcast and she interviews women behind the scenes and below the line in the British film industry. So that was quite a cool one. Um, cause I was, I was on a bit of a, I was on a bit of a, a quest to learn everything about execs and commissioning and these sorts of things. And she, she did a good one with Rose Garnet. Uh, so who is, I believe moving to A24 to set up the UK branch. So I was just kind of getting clued up on that. So that was a good old chat. Um, and she, she does so many others. Um, so I highly recommend checking that out. Yeah. She's got some cracking yeah. guests on there. Yeah. 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 Um, and that's been going for a very long time. It's super established and she does film events and stuff and uh, in-person surgeries. So yeah, definitely check that out. Remy, thank you so much, man. It's been really, really good to talk to you and just unpick and unpack your journey. Yeah, thank you so much for having me on, man. It feels like I'm a superstar now. <laughs> you are. Uh, so it's a big, very big confidence boost. No, no, you are, man. And, and, and also just to say that... Um, Remy's film, Saving Art, I watched it in the last 24 hours. It's a wonderful film. It's a really mature um, film in terms of the storytelling. Um, and I urge everybody, because I'm sure it's going to take it everywhere, every festival, I urge everybody to go and look at it because it's, it's definitely going to hit you in your heart. So, Remy, congratulations on that piece of work. It's a cracking piece of work. Uh, thank you, man. Did you cry? Uh, nearly. <laughs> nearly. I'm 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 a yeah, really hard toxic. person to get crying. My wife complains yeah, about it's it a, a toxic lot. Male. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it was lovely. Yeah, thank you, man. So, if anyone does happen to be listening, get your questions in at the director's take at outlook.com, and we want you to tell us what you want to know about directing or the film industry at large, and we'll do our best to tell you. We want to shape this as a resource for you, so do get your questions in and reach out to us on Instagram, which is the Directors Take podcast, and also on Twitter, which is at Directors Take. I'm sure we're going to have a Threads one soon, aren't we, Marcus? At some point? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> and um, Remy, where can people find you? Uh, I'm on Twitter and Instagram. I'm um, Remy 
RM Moses or RM Moses UK. They're both different, but RM Moses UK. If you search it, you'll find me there. Brilliant, amazing. Thank you. So I think that's it. Until next time, keep learning, keep failing, and keep the faith.